All right. Good morning, everybody. So we've come now to our sixth week in our series where we've been looking at Jesus' letters to the churches in Revelation. Uh, Jesus had messages for seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century. And we've been looking at those messages and asking ourselves, what might these mean for our church today? And as was already mentioned, this week we're looking at uh, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, that ancient city of cheesesteak sandwiches. Um, Kidding, of course, not the same Philadelphia. Don't get confused about that. This church must have been very special because Jesus doesn't offer any corrections in this letter. Uh, So far, there have been, in almost every letter, right, Jesus has uh, said some affirmations, right, some commendations, and then he's followed that up with, but you guys need to work on this, right? And in this letter, uh, Jesus offers no corrections, only affirmation. You might remember that last week we looked at the church in Sardis, and that church got all correction, no affirmation. So this is kind of the mirror image of the last church we looked at. And what I want us to, to notice here is that Jesus knows the specifics of every church, including our church, and in these letters, he addresses each church specifically, recognizing the particular context and what they're going through. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, open up to Revelation 3, starting in verse 7. Revelation 3, verse 7. Now before we get into this, I just want to establish a couple background facts about Philadelphia. Three things. Number one, the church was small. Uh, We don't know exactly how many people it had, but it definitely wasn't big. Last week when we looked at the church at Sardis, you might remember that they had a reputation for being alive, which means it was probably a pretty big congregation. But underneath the surface, the church at Sardis was spiritually dead. Now, the church at Philadelphia probably appeared dead, on the exterior because it was so small, but in reality it was much more alive than the church at Sardis. And this should be a reminder to us, the size of a church is not necessarily an indicator of its health. All of us should want any church that we're a part of to grow, and all of us should be intentional about inviting people and trying to Uh, bring more people into a fellowship of following Jesus, absolutely, but we should never assume that high attendance is some sort of foolproof indicator of whether we're healthy as a church. So that's first piece of background information. Second, the church was persecuted. Uh, This church was actually in a situation that was almost identical to the church in Smyrna, which was the second church we looked at, and you might remember that what happened in that church was that it had been part of the Jewish synagogue, and then they got kicked out. The Jews at the synagogue had decided, you guys are not part of the family of God, you're out. And that was very dangerous at this time in history, because this was in the Roman Empire, and in the Roman Empire, only certain religions were protected under the law. Only certain religions had the freedom to practice. Judaism was one of them. Um, But as soon as Christians were kicked out of the synagogue and no longer considered Jews, now they were more subject to religious persecution in the Roman Empire. So uh, being kicked out of the synagogue was an act of persecution, which then led to more persecution. 
And then finally, one other interesting bit of background information is this is a city that had suffered from a lot of earthquakes. Uh, in 17 AD, there was an earthquake that was so bad that just completely devastated the city. And for a long time after that, there were aftershocks. And what many people would do is they would get uncomfortable living in the city because at any point, you know, something might fall on you. And so they would go out and, and move into the more open spaces of farmland. Um, so if you lived in Philadelphia, you were always a little uh, insecure. You always felt like everything could come crashing down at any moment. So keep that in mind, okay? All right, so let's look at the text, Revelation 3.7. But before we get into this, let's say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you so much for this morning, beautiful fall morning. We thank you for the, the privilege of being able to gather together in worship. And we pray, as we do every week, Lord, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive whatever it is that you want to teach us from your word this morning, Lord. Help us to be open and attentive to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, if you're like me, there's a lot in there where you're wondering what exactly did that mean. So let's take it from the top and go through it a little bit more slowly. Uh, Jesus says, or he describes himself as the one who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David, and what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. What, what is that about? Well, these are Jewish expressions that describe having power and authority. Uh, if whatever you open, no one can shut, you're the one in charge, Right? Now, why does Jesus choose these specific expressions to describe himself? He's very intentional. I want us to remember that. Very intentional about the words that he chooses. It's because, remember, the leaders of the Jewish synagogue had what? Shut them out. Right? And Jesus wants the believers at Philadelphia to know the people in the synagogue don't really have the power to shut you out of the family of God. The one that really has the power to do that is him, and what does Jesus say? Jesus says, see or behold, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Right? In other words, I have not shut you out. 
It doesn't matter what the leaders at the synagogue say. The door between you and God is open. You have been welcomed into the family of God. I think we have to be very careful, as the church, uh, not to be like the Jewish leaders in the synagogue. Now, sadly, throughout the centuries, the church has, at times, been guilty of shutting people out when Jesus has opened the door, right? Jesus has opened the door to people of all races, people of all socioeconomic classes, people of all mental capacities, and let's be honest, people who believe a lot of different things about non-essential matters of doctrine. He's opened the door to Calvinists and Arminians. He's opened the door to people who like Caleb and people who hate it. And we in the church, we've got to be very careful not to shut the door on anyone that Jesus has opened it for. As you may have noticed, he calls the synagogue that does this the synagogue of Satan, right? Now, they weren't literally worshiping Satan, but Jesus uses this term because that's how strongly he feels about when people shut those out that he has let in, right? When we, when we uh, exclude those that he wants to include. So we have to be very careful. Jesus says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, when he says little strength, he doesn't mean they're weak. It's important for us to recognize that. These people aren't weak at all, right? He says that they have, um, they have kept his word and not denied his name. These are spiritual superstars, relatively speaking. Um, but when he says that they have little strength, he's saying what the first piece of background information that we identified, that this is a small church. They probably weren't seeing a lot of new converts. If this church was reporting to a denomination, as many churches do uh, these days, they probably feel a little embarrassed when they wrote down their, their records at the end of the year. Uh, but this church had no reason to feel ashamed because they had been faithful, right? They had continued to hold on to the gospel even though it was costly for them. And what Jesus does for the rest of this letter is he just tries to encourage these people to keep doing what they're doing. And maybe if any of us are struggling to remain faithful uh, to our, our walk with Jesus, hopefully what he says will be encouraging for us as well. So this morning is all about encouragement. So first, first encouragement comes from verse 9. Uh, Jesus says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. I think that that sentence ends in an unexpected way. Uh, I think in our natural state, we kind of assume that it's going to say something like, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and beg you for mercy. You know, or I will make them come and fall down at your feet and serve you forever. But instead it's, I will make them acknowledge that I have loved you. When we hear the words judgment day, there's usually a bunch of different kinds of images that flood our minds. But one image that I don't think we usually have is of people admitting that people they hated, God loved. Is that something that you think of when you think of Judgment Day? You know, like some Ku Klux Klan member being like, you know what, I admit it, God really loved those black people, and I should have too. But 
That's what this verse is suggesting or implying will be part of the judgment day. People will have to admit that God loved those that they hated. And here's a word of encouragement for us. If you are a follower of Christ, and there are people in your life who have abused you, or mistreated you, or condemned you, or have in some way not honored the image of God that's in you, one day those people will have to acknowledge that you were worth more than the way they treated you. They will have to acknowledge that even though they didn't love you, God did. And he does. And he is the one who knows our true value. I feel like some of us might need to hear that this morning. I hope you find that encouraging. So that's the first encouragement Jesus gives. Second word of encouragement comes in verse 10. Jesus says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, this verse is a little difficult to interpret, and it kind of forces us to get into the weeds a little bit of end times theology, which I really wanted to put off, (laughs) but this verse doesn't really give us any choice. So, this verse is very significant because it is probably the most important verse in Revelation for those who want to argue for something called the rapture. How many of us are familiar with the rapture? Raise your hand if you've heard of the rapture before. Okay, if you've ever read a book or seen a movie called Left Behind, uh, you are familiar with the rapture. Uh, But for anyone who's not familiar, I will give a quick explanation. Okay, many believe based on their understanding of scripture, that there is a period of time that's going to come known as the tribulation. Here it's called the hour of trial, right? And this is a time when things on earth are going to get really ugly. Uh, A period of time when God is not going to spare the world the consequences of humanity's bad decisions. And this period of tribulation will conclude with Jesus Uh, returning to earth to finally set things right and establish the kingdom of God. And what many people believe is that Jesus will spare the church the experience of the tribulation by rapturing the church away before it begins. So in other words, by taking us all up to heaven before the tribulation starts. That's the idea of the rapture. And for some of you, maybe many of you, this idea was taught to you as if it was an unquestionable fact uh, that someday all Christians in the world are going to disappear and go to be with Jesus. This is why you may at some point have seen or even owned a bumper sticker that looks like this. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Uh... Now, this whole idea, it's important for us to recognize, it is not explicitly taught in the Bible, this doctrine of the rapture. Uh, It is an interpretation that has developed as people have tried to understand the scriptures. And this verse is really important for those who want to argue for the rapture, because it seems to be saying that God is going to keep some people from experiencing this tribulation, right? Right? Now, 
I am not going to be real dogmatic about what we need to believe when it comes to how the end times are all going to play out. Uh, we need to believe that Jesus is coming back. Okay? That's really important. But we need to have grace for each other when it comes to how we understand all the details. Okay? And I think we really need to allow for disagreement when it comes to the subject of the rapture. You can be a Christian and not believe in the rapture. And if you find that difficult to believe, uh, let me remind us all of something that's very important to keep in mind. The idea of the rapture was first advocated by this guy named John Nelson Darby. He looks very intimidating there. Right? John Nelson Darby is a Bible expositor, founder of what's known as the Plymouth Brethren. He lived from 1800 to 1882. And he was the first guy to sort of try and assemble the scriptures and interpret them in such a way that he advocated for this thing called the rapture. Now, that means that for 1,800 of the 2,000 years that the church has been around, nobody believed in the rapture. So, now that doesn't mean it's wrong, but here's what it definitely means. It means that the rapture is not an essential doctrine for Christian faith. It cannot be, because if it is, 90% of the church's history was missing something essential to the faith. They weren't. Okay, we have to we have to remember that. Um, so <clears throat> many Christians throughout history has, have not believed in the rapture. Most of them have not, and many Christians today don't think that's the best interpretation of the scriptures. Which is why this bumper sticker exists: "Warning: In case of the rapture, this car will be pulled over." Rethinking his eschatology. <laughs> And just in case anyone doesn't know, eschatology, that's just a fancy word for what you believe about the end times. And the reason this bumper sticker exists is because there are Christians who don't think the Bible teaches the rapture, and they're convinced enough of that that if it suddenly happened, it'd really throw them for a loop. Okay? Now, like I said, for those who argue for the rapture, this verse is key here, Revelation 3.10 probably the most important one in the book of Revelation. But I would argue that if you're going to believe in the rapture, this idea that all Christians are just one day going to go poof and disappear from the earth and all their cars are going to crash and their clothes are going to be left in little piles, uh, if you're going to believe that, you really need a stronger argument than just this one verse. Uh, this verse cannot be the thing that you hang your hat on. But Jesus does say, I will keep you from the hour of trial, right? Now, what could that possibly mean besides the rapture? Well, I want to offer us two interpretive possibilities, okay? One possibility is that Jesus is simply saying this church won't be around when the final tribulation comes. Uh, not because they will have been raptured off the earth, but because they will have passed away by that time in history when it begins, Jesus will delay his coming. He will protect them from this, this period of time. So that is one possibility. Uh, another possibility is that the church will be around in some form when the tribulation comes, but they will be protected during it, which is not the same thing as being removed from it. Okay? How we understand this verse depends a lot on how we understand the words keep you from. 
I will keep you from the hour of trial. Does that mean I will pull you off the earth so that you're not around during the tribulation? Well, maybe, and keep you from does kind of have the connotation of removal in English, right? Uh, But those Greek words can also be translated as protect you from. I will protect you from the hour of trial. And for perspective, consider this verse. In John 17, 15, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and not just for his disciples, but all those who will believe in their message who come after them. And he prays this, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And guess what? The Greek words there, protect them from, are the same words as the ones in Revelation 3.10. So in this prayer, Jesus specifically says that being protected from evil, being kept from evil, doesn't mean being removed from the world. It means being protected while we're in the world. See that? So it's very possible that what Jesus is saying in Revelation 3.10 is simply, if you keep on walking with me, then when the tribulation comes, you will be safe. Your heart, your mind, your soul is going to be kept and protected and guarded. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be pulled out of the situation. It doesn't mean that you're going to have it easy. Uh, It doesn't mean that you're going to be spared all suffering or all physical harm. I mean, were the disciples spared all physical harm? Most of us recognize from history that, that they were martyrs, right? But Jesus' prayer for them was still answered. They were protected, they were kept, they were guarded from the evil one. Ultimately, the disciples were kept safe. And if we continue to walk with Jesus, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, our hearts, our minds, our souls will be safe. They will be kept, they will be guarded. That will be true if we're going through the common tribulations of you know, health problems, financial problems, Uh, relationship issues, and it will be true if we're going through the final tribulation of history. Whatever trial we're in, whatever tribulation we're in, God will be with us and he will guard and protect us and he will keep us uh, from the evil one. So we definitely have other interpretive options here than just the rapture, okay? And personally, I do think they're better options, actually. Okay. Okay. Let's keep going. So in verse 12, uh, Jesus gives some more encouragement. He says, Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. What is Jesus promising here? Jesus is promising that those who persevere will have a secure, everlasting home. A secure, everlasting home. And remember how I said, Jesus is very intentional, very context-specific with his words here. Why is he emphasizing this? Because remember, this was the city that had a big problem with earthquakes, right? Home never felt secure. And remember how I said a lot of people would have to leave their homes sometimes and go out into the outer uh, farmland away from the city in order to feel safe. Well, that's why Jesus phrases it, never again will he leave it, right? The home that you are eventually going to have will be one where it is safe, it is secure, you don't have to worry 
anymore. Now, we might not live in an area that's known for earthquakes. In fact, I remember back in 2006, there was some article that said that Storrs, Connecticut is the safest place to live in the world if you want to be um, spared natural disasters. <laughs> really, I'm not kidding. It was specifically Storrs, Connecticut. Um, <laughs> but even if you're in Storrs, Connecticut, right, uh, there's always a chance that your earthly home will fall down or burn down or be swept away or get robbed. There's always a chance that you'll lose your job and not have enough financial stability to pay the mortgage, right? There's always some insecurity when it comes to our earthly homes. And unless we find our true home in faith in Christ, we will never have the security that we crave. We'll never have it. The only hope that we have of a permanent, secure place to rest is through faith in the promises of Jesus. And then finally, Jesus encourages this church in one other way. Uh, he says that he is going to write three different names on his people. Three names. The name of God the name of the city of God, and his new name, the new name of Christ. Now, what is this about? Does this mean that in the kingdom of God, we're all going to get tattoos, like a heart tattoo? You know, it says God, Jerusalem, and whatever Jesus' new name is. Um, no, I, I don't think that's what Jesus means. Uh, I think what he's talking about here is something way more significant than you're going to get a tattoo. When Jesus says you will have these names written on you, what he's saying is you will belong to these things forever. You will belong to these things forever. To have a name put on you is a sign of belonging. When the name is of God is on you, that means you belong to God. You belong to his family. You, you have been adopted as his son or his daughter. And when you have the name of the city of God on you, that means this city is your true home. This is where your citizenship lies. And when you have the new name of Christ on you, that means you belong to Jesus forever. But it actually means something else. Two, uh, what is the significance of the fact that the name is new? Well, I don't know exactly, uh, but it suggests to me that there are things about Jesus, about God, that we don't know yet, and one day we're going to know them, right? There is glory and beauty and wonder that we have just tasted a little bit of right now, and someday... In the New Jerusalem, we're going to have access to this whole new level of experience of the knowledge of God that, you know, it's probably too wonderful for us to even comprehend in our current state. So, I don't know about you, but for me, that's an exciting, exciting thought. But again, the main idea here with all three of these names is belonging. You will belong to God, belong to Christ, belong to heaven forever. And that's very significant because all of us have a very deep desire to belong, right? To know who we are, to have a place where we fit, to be happy with who we are. 
And what Jesus is promising here is if we continue trusting in him, our desire for belonging and for healthy identity will be fulfilled and satisfied forever. So I, I want to conclude by putting this all together. Okay, let's do a quick review. This church was given some awesome promises to encourage them, right? And I've got four here. Feel free to write these down if you're taking notes. This church has promised that their enemies will one day have to acknowledge their value. This church has promised that they will be protected through the worst of trials. They will be safe. They'll be guarded. This church has promised that they will have a safe and secure home forever. And this church has promised that their desire for belonging and healthy identity will be satisfied forever. And I really believe that these promises to the church in Philadelphia are for us too. But as in all these letters to the churches, the promises are for those who hold on to Jesus, right? For those who persevere, those who overcome. We live in a time where people seem more willing to let go of faith than in the past. Uh, I've read some uh, research that says that the fastest growing religious group in our country right now are people who just identify as none, uh, no, no religious affiliation at all. Which means that there are a lot of people who once identified in some sense as Christian who no longer do. And I just want to conclude by saying, if any of us are feeling that pull to drift away from identifying with Christ, this morning I want to encourage us to do what Jesus told the Philadelphians, which is hold on. Keep going. Hold on to what you have. Persevere. You know, if your faith feels dissatisfying in some way, don't drift away. Go deeper. Don't Give things up. Learn more. Go deeper into the heart of God. Maybe you're dissatisfied or bored because you, you aren't really stepping into all of what faith really means in your life, what it can really, uh, what it can really do for you. Um, so don't drift. Go deeper and be reminded of the good things that God promised for those who don't let go. Because I don't know about you, but that is an awesome list. I want to experience those things. Hold fast. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these words of encouragement. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would recognize whatever one of these promises we, we most need to um, think about right now. Um, each one of us, Lord, we have our own unique situations that we're dealing with, and um, these promises can cover a wide variety of circumstances, Lord. And I just pray that your spirit would take them and apply them to our hearts, Lord. Um, help us to see how they speak to each one of us. Lord, give us the strength to persevere, uh, to continue holding on to what you have revealed. Um, Lord, if we're, if we're feeling dissatisfied or drifting, Lord, help us to go deeper. Help us to turn and to go deeper uh, into pursuing you. 
And uh, we just give you thanks, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.